Welcome to the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. I'm your guest, Al Williams. And we are your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. This is episode 160. So before we get started, a quick self-promoting announcement before we jump into the podcast. Did you know that we can go from 1 to 1,000 plus units with Macrofab? Did you also know that we do full turnkey PCB assembly, including build box fulfillment and shipment to your end customers? That's right. There are two easy ways to get started. You can either log in and upload your EDA tool files directly to get instant quotes or email sales at macfab.com for quotes on larger quantities and specialty boards. So Al Williams is probably best known for being one of the authors behind Hackaday, a website that features electronic projects and other things that appeal to people interested in computers, electronics, and technology. He's also a ham radio operator, author of many books, and has worked on everything from underwater technology to the International Space Station and just about everything in between. Also, Al Williams was on previous podcast episodes 57 and 94, so go check those out if you're new to the podcast. Al, what have you been up to since then? Well, I tell you, I'm suffering from what doctors call pony syndrome. You know, I'm a little hoarse, um, but if you'll bear with me on that. Uh, yeah, that's going to set the tone for the whole podcast, I'm afraid. Yeah, it's all so. downhill from here. <laughs> well, you know, I think last time we talked, we were just starting to work up on uh, Hackaday.io, which, uh, you know, you mentioned Hackaday. Hackaday.io is kind of our project site. So, you know, you can think of it as like GitHub, but for hardware projects. And, uh, you know, we've started doing the FPGA boot camps, we call them on there. And I've really been interested in those because people are really... Uh, working through those at a, an amazing clip. We've got a few more left to do that'll be coming out later this year. But essentially, we start with Boot Camp Zero, which is just, you know, basic logic. I mean, it's not even FPGA related. It's AND gates and OR gates and flip-flops. Boolean algebra. Yeah, all that stuff. And then we work into uh, doing stuff with the really inexpensive Lattice FPGA uh, ice stick. But it'll work with a lot of other things, too. There's only one of those boot camps that's really specific. And so we go all the way up. I think there's six of them out now. There's actually seven or eight in the can, uh, and they just haven't all been released yet. But we go all the way up to state machines and building a UART from scratch that actually has some novel features to it just because I didn't want to do yet another copy of the UART that you always see floating around. Uh, so that's actually been very exciting. A lot of work, but it's been really, really interesting and kind of plays into a lot of the things that I'm kind of interested in, that being, you know, FPGAs and how do we better educate people and how do we document stuff. So, And that's on the hackaday.io, correct? That is, yeah. If you search even on Hackaday, because we've done posts about it too, you'll find it. But if you look for Hackaday Boot Camp, uh, FPGA Boot Camp, you'll, you'll find it. Yeah, I think we talked about that last time was um, what kind of FPGA you were going to go with. And I think you just said the ice stick which is a lattice. Yeah, I mean, it's been around for a while, uh, and it's very inexpensive. It's really easy to get through the channel. But, you know, there's a lot of different boards that have been coming out. It's really interesting. And one of the things I've thought about is if we get enough popularity to support it, is we may branch out some of those that are specific to different boards. Um, you know, I'm always kind of struck. I think we kind of talked about this on one of the previous podcasts. I mean, people use FPGAs differently, right? So just like you can't say, well, I'm an electrical engineer, and then that kind of describes exactly what you do, right? Because some electrical engineers do power distribution, and some do microcircuits, and some do PC board layouts and RF. 
Well, it's the same way with the FPGAs, right? I mean, I think some people are using it to design what you used to design with logic, right? Like we just talked about. I think there's people like me who like to play with CPU architectures, which, yeah, that's technically logic, but it's kind of, you know, a different step of logic, right? There's a little different discipline to that. And then I think there's people who just grab IP and basically build up custom microprocessors with them. We're seeing a whole division of that sort of thing with like the zinc, you know, so you're not really designing your own CPU. You're just kind of making, you know, taking a CPU that's either in silicon or or in, uh, you know, IP, which is intellectual property, right? Think of it like software module for an FPGA. And combining that with other pieces of IP, so you say, oh, now I have a processor that's got three PWM outputs and four pulse captures because that's exactly what I needed. You can, yeah, you can put in your own peripherals, right? Right, and you, you know, you configure your memory how you like, you configure your I.O. how you like, and you've got basically one part number in inventory. And of course, you can even reconfigure, but that's pretty advanced. But it turns out, I think the boards now are really starting to, it's getting where you can kind of delineate them on who, who they're for. So the ice stick is kind of what I think of as an IC-like FPGA. It's really just a breakout board for a chip. And yeah, I think it's got like four LEDs on it or something, but that's about it. Um, we talked a little bit last time about that up Duino which is essentially looks like a basic stamp with the same kind of chip on it. It's actually a slightly better chip, but it's it's compatible. So on the boot camps, you can actually use the Uptoino, and I think it's like 10 bucks. Um, I mean, really inexpensive. There's Tiny FPGA. We did a really cool two-part uh, in Hackaday on the that Max 1000 board that uh, it's actually from Arrow, but really I think a German company, Trends or somebody, actually is the design behind it. And it's got an Intel... FPGA on it, which, you know, was Altera. And we did the, uh, of course, you know, we're doing this audio, so you can't see I'm waving my hand back and forth. We did the persistence of vision uh, widget with the LEDs on it. So as you move back and forth, it would say whatever you wanted it to say. Um, that's another one. It's It's got a few little minor IO devices on it, but primarily it's a, you know, it's just a breakout board. So obviously it's got an accelerometer on it for that purpose. Um, if you look at Di uh, Digilent, you know, they've got the CMOD, which are the same kind of thing. They're like little basic stamp form factor uh, cross between PC board and IC. So those are really good for people just doing, you know, I just want to replace a whole bunch of logic chips or I want to learn about logic. Uh, but we also see the dev boards like Digilent's got a bunch that are more for people fielding CPUs where you've got a board. Uh, you know, it's got LEDs on it, LED displays, it's got switches. Some of them have, you know, network adapters or, uh, you know, things that you would put on a computer, essentially, right? You probably don't need a NIC and a serial port for your, your logic circuits, but you do for your CPU. <clears throat> and it's really surprising how inexpensive some of those are. I was just looking this morning, you know, some of the older boards that have smaller chips on them and maybe some limitations, you can get those for $40. I mean, it's really amazing. So the idea that, you know, it used to be this was some $50,000 buy-in to get into this business, it really isn't anymore. Uh, and then you got the CPU ones like Zboard, Pink, Zybo. You know, those are great if you're really going to go with the route of saying, well, I want an ARM CPU, and then I just want to customize it. I want to add a custom instruction. I want to add, a, you know, hardware multiplier and some PWM outputs or something like that. Those are really good, and the vendors are really getting scary good at, at kind of 
bringing all that infrastructure together so that you really just kind of build your CPU, write your software, you're all in one environment and it just all kind of works. So it's pretty cool. So did you ever use your, uh, you had an ice stick, right? Did it ever come out of the package or is it like half the stuff I have and just sits in the package till I get rid of it? I, I, I'll let you in on a, on a really cool little secret. So at the end of our last podcast with, with Al Williams, which was episode 94, uh, just I think the day after, Parker handed me uh, his ice stick, which was still in the package, and it is now out of the package, <laughs> Oh! and it has been out of the package for a total of three or four days, something oh. something like that. So I have I, I have put it up on top of my speaker that sits next to my computer so I can look at it and be like, I need to do an FPGA something. I don't know, but but I, I'm certainly going to go check out the uh, the boot camps and 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 actually, you know what, what what kind of brings up with what you were talking about there that that the string of of information you just gave there seems like a really fantastic cross section of here's bottom to top in a way of what someone might be interested in. Is that reflected in the boot camps? Well, I mean, we're kind of moving at the the level where you're doing the logic design. You know, we're not covering CPU design today. I'm not saying we wouldn't get there, uh, but at the moment we're not doing that. It's just we're a long way from there, I think, would be the, the trick to that. As far as the CPU-oriented ones, that's almost not FPGA design, right? That's really your, you become a user of somebody else's FPGA designs in that case. So we really haven't covered that very much either, uh, although obviously, you know, crawl, walk, run. You know, you've got to start somewhere. And I think no matter how you approach it, you do want some fundamental understanding of what's happening. So I think the boot camps are a good intro. Now, you might not go past, say, boot camp three if you really just want to jump over and start gathering IP from people and, and more integrating it. Uh, some of the later ones might not be that interesting. But I think if you're trying to do a CPU, there's certainly where you're going to start. If you're just doing digital logic, I think that's certainly a, you know, there's a great path through there. Also learning like just the fundamentals of like either VHDL or Verilog is pretty important, even if you're just doing IP gathering, so to speak. Yeah, because you still got to increment, uh, in integrate it. And, you know, it's interesting you mentioned that because that's one of the things that's been on my mind lately is, you know, we've got I, I prefer Verilog. I don't think that's a big secret, although sometimes I have people paying me that I have to do VHDL and that's OK. I can do that, too. But there's all these newer languages out now, right? There's Spinal HDL, and I don't know, there's three or four others that I see and occasionally write posts on Hackaday about. And it's interesting because it's clear that there's people who have innovative ideas about how to make this easier, uh, how to make it work better. And the problem is, professionally, I don't know that anybody cares, right? I mean, it'd be like if you could invent a better language than C, it's really hard to say, oh, okay, well, we're going to start using my language, you know, Parker Lang or whatever. Okay, nobody's heard of it. There's no support for it. Yawn, right? No one cares. And so it makes you wonder how, how many great ideas are just stuck away in those kind of products. And so one of my things on my stack of things to do, um, you know, because I have the stack of boards also. I've, it's like an in-out box here where I've got the left is the stuff I want to get to and the right's the stuff that's going to get given away for a school or something. Um, but you know, I want to kind of go look at some of those and see, well, what are the, what's the unique differences in those languages that maybe we ought to be learning from? And, and maybe that comes out in the next spec of Verilog, or maybe you do go evangelize it because it's a lot better. And there's some reason for that. Um, but it's a hard sell, you know, it's a hard sell to go to people who've been entrenched in that. 
Some of those languages actually generate VHDL or Verilog on the back end anyway. So then you might argue, well, I could just sell it as, well, I'm going to use this tool to generate the, the Verilog. Um, so that might be possible. But again, so then is it worth it, right? What's the value proposition? I don't know the answer to that. I really don't. You guys ever use any of those odd ones? Uh, I've used odd an odd language before that's not FPGA related. Um, I'm actually a big fan of Parallax's spin code. Yeah. Um, that might be kind of like the most popular microcontroller code that's not C or C++. Um, even though like what MicroPython is getting pretty big and uh, apparently Rust is on microcontrollers now as well. Yes. So, yeah, and a lot of people are very militantly in love with Rust. Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> nothing wrong with that. Um, it's just, but uh, that's I, I just like how Spin handles, you know, writing the software out. So. Yeah. Well, you know, the interesting thing about Spin and, and the propeller in general is it's kind of a trade, right? You say, okay, I'm not going to give you interrupts, but I'm going to give you processors that can just go wait on things and I'll give you multiple processors. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of an interesting idea. I'm always surprised we don't see more. I mean, there are, there have been some really interesting things done with that, but I always think there should have been more things done with that. And I think, like I say, it goes back to the fact that it's kind of a niche, right? It's not, it's not as mainstream as some of the other things. Yeah. It's, it's on the parallax propeller is one of those. It's a very unusual microcontroller architecture, which you don't really see a lot of different ones out there like you don't see you got you know your regular harvard and and what's the other one um uh or whatever well you got risk cisc right so yeah i mean you but yeah everything's either harvard or shared memory data and it runs Correct. through but yeah the the these guys had something different was well, chip gracie obviously uh that was his brainchild right and the the whole idea behind spin was that you had these multiple processors sharing resources and so it obviates the need for interrupts to get real-time performance mm -hmm. and uh, i don't know if they you know i mean they've done a great job of of promoting that in certain markets and of course they open sourced some of it uh, what last year i think so that you can actually get some of their uh designs and actually work on them i don't know how many people are really doing anything with that either but it's one of those things that always seems like there ought to be more being done with it yeah you can actually run their um code on a FPGA to emulate a, I guess it's technically not an emulation since you're actually configuring gates. Um, you can run a parallax propeller, the first one on an FPGA. The that, That's one thing is oh, we're not seeing those. We don't see a lot of microcontroller architectures out there that are truly different like how the parallax propeller is. But with an FPGA, you can basically make whatever you want if you wanted to. Well, and you know, that's kind of my thing, right? So I don't remember if we've talked about that before or not, but you know, years back I did the one instruction wonder. And so it's a, literally a CPU, 32 bit CPU with one instruction. And, uh, that, that's actually kind of fun. It's, 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 <clears throat> it's one of those things where I thought I had invented that. And then after I did a little research, it was like, Oh, wait, somebody else had thought of it a long time ago. I just reinvented it. Um, it's called a transfer triggered architecture, and it's one of several different kinds of one instruction computers you can do. Um, so if you go look up, um, Dr. Dobbs ran all that, and uh, I think it's still out on open cores. I think I've got it on open cores or one of those sites, but uh, look up one instruction wonder, and that's that was my attempt at a, a, a neat architecture. 
actually have a fourth compiler for it, so you can actually program it in a high-level language. Uh, never did take the agony it takes to port a C compiler, but it would have supported it. I mean, it's certainly robust enough to have supported a GCC port if I had the patience to do that. <laughs> Every time I read the documentation on porting GCC to something, I want to hang myself. It's really bad. <laughs> that's why you just have other people do it for you. Well, that's what grad students are for, right? But, uh, you know, it's interesting. There's a couple of, I ought to revisit that because there's been a lot of change in that space now, right? Where you've got, you know, LCC was out and now there's, what is the, uh, what's the other one? The one that Clang has done on, uh, Clang's on top of, I can't remember now, but there's a couple of more sane portable C compilers now that don't have all the legacy baggage GCC has. You know, we did an article on that for Hackaday uh, probably three or four years ago about, you know, what's hard about designing a CPU. And it turns out it's not hard to design a CPU. It's hard to design all the ancillary stuff that you need to get a usable ecosystem around it. So you need an assembler and you need a compiler and you need a debugger and you need linkers you know, and yeah, linkers and libraries and all that stuff. So you know, your choices are, I mean, if you're just experimenting, what a lot of people will do is say, oh, I'll duplicate this ARM chip or I'll duplicate this AVR chip and then I can use their tools. But I mean, commercially, that's a good way to invite a lawsuit. Uh, so you can't do that. But if you're going to do it yourself, it's a lot of work. Yeah, I remember when we were in school, um, my uh, VLSI class, we used an ARM2 core and we basically divide, uh, designed everything around it. And that way we could actually, you know, we had a coding environment to actually use it later down the road. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that I think gets missed a lot is that if you're just in this for the education part of it, you don't have to have any hardware at all. You know, you can actually simulate all this stuff really well. And that kind of had a bad rap for a long time because when your PC was slow, you know, yeah, your CPU would take overnight to simulate, you know, a few thousand instructions. But the CPU power you have now is so fantastic that uh, you really can get a lot done in simulation. Now, it's never really a replacement for real life. Uh, I know we've talked about EDA Playground, and that's one of the things we do in the boot camps, by the way, is we use EDA Playground, although you don't have to use it. Uh, you can just use Icarus, which is another simulator. But that means that you can be reading the, the boot camp in the browser, and you have another browser window open, and you're working on your simulation and writing your code and seeing the output that goes along with that. So there's links that take you into EDA Playground with the entire setup already ready for you. So that means you don't have to figure out to install things and, well, does this work on Mac OS? And does it, you know, it doesn't matter if you've got a web browser that's, you know, reasonably modern, it'll work. You mean it's not going to uh, work with Netscape? I don't know. Maybe not. But, uh, yeah, the, yeah, your, uh, your text based, what, links, links, it's not going to work with links. But it was interesting, since we've talked last, there's a, we did a post on this for Hackaday, which of course I keep saying that, but that's because that's my life, right, is generating Hackaday posts. Um, uh, 8bitworkshop.com. Have you guys seen that one? I have not. So it's interesting. It, it looks like the site's been around for a while where it's one of these kind of fantasy video game computer type things, right, where the, you go in and you can kind of code your video games but they've recently added support for FPGA. And you can actually go in there and say, okay, I want to do some FPGA code, and you can see the logic traces, and you can also generate things on the, the fantasy virtual screen, if you will. 
And there's a lot of great examples. So, you know, there's the balls bouncing and stuff like that. So if you ever thought, well, gee, okay, I kind of read through some Verilog stuff and, and I get the syntax, but how would I actually go do something real with it? Well, there's some pretty good video game examples worked out on that site. So uh, I was very impressed with that. I mean, it's not very practical, and I'm sure some people would turn their nose up at it because it's not professional, it's video games, yada, yada. But I thought it was really a great effort to... Uh, to do things and get kind of make that more accessible. I'm at, I'm looking at the page now and I actually pretty excited about the it's not the FPGA one but it's the Atari 2600. Um they've got a basically you can program Atari 2600 in the browser and basically it simulates it with a an emulator um in your browser so you don't even need the hardware there which is kind of amazing. Um, and makes it a lot easier. They, they have a they have a section here on uh, on the front page that says hardware design, and it talks about porting your code over to a lattice ice stick and connecting it to a CRT. So if you want to take your code and actually play it on, you know, an old TV, I guess you could do that. That's that's fantastic. I think it's funny how they say legacy CRT or TV, even though those are <laughs> technically the same thing. <laughs> hey, maybe maybe we need to reconsider uh, our, our our Zork game on a FPGA. So you know, records made a comeback, right? The LP records. So you think maybe in fifteen twenty years, there's going to be some cult of people saying, "Ooh, but those glass TVs, they look better." There's. A <laughs> I hope not, because I just tossed out my last CRT monitor about a week ago. <laughs> so, so I remember one of the guys at Macrofab, his his son uh, actually had them pull their old TV out of the attic because its latency was better for uh, playing Smash Brothers on. So, you know, button click to action was faster on an old CRT. I think I'm going to go trademark uh, hollow state monitor just for when that happens. Right. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. So, uh, but the other thing that's interesting on the simulation side, by the way, and, and I, I'm kind of surprised we don't see more of this, was it, you don't see it done much, but, you know, all the Verilog interpreters for simulation have that PLI-VPI interface. So if you had some, you know, people, because I, I hear people say, well, I can't really simulate stuff because I have this complex external world I have to hook to, so I have to go hook up to that. But with those interfaces, you can write that, that complicated external world in C or C++ or Python, or there's, there's bindings for all sorts of things now. I was looking the other day, there was some I'd never even heard of. And, you know, so there's a lot of things you can do in simulation without buying any piece of hardware at all. And I think things like this 8-bit workshop, that's a really good example of that, right? I could sit and do a whole video game, like you say, on the Atari or in Verilog or you know, whatever, and I can see it work, I can play it even, and I don't have to do anything. I don't have to install any software, I don't have to uh, buy any hardware, I just, it's all in the browser. It's pretty awesome. And I, I'm surprised we don't see more of that with PLI, VPI, to get people doing these external things in simulation instead of having to go out and say, well, I'm going to go try to troubleshoot my stuff on the breadboard. You know, that's actually a, a idea um, there. Is I'm I'm gonna guess with this PLI VPI stuff you can like, because uh, a lot of stuff I use FPGAs for is like converting data, like video data from one format to another format. And I guess if you, I mean, you just have to capture what your inputs are and then just feed that into your simulation at that point. And I'm gonna guess this supports data stream. Yeah, you could do that. 
I'm going to have to look into that. I mean, like, for example, even debugging, you could do that with, like, a spreadsheet, right? You could have something that's just shot data through out of a spreadsheet into your simulation. Yeah. A boot camp off that, on that would be nice. <laughs> yeah, I actually was thinking about that. Yeah, I was actually thinking about that. That's probably not the next one, but that, that one might be further down the pipe. So, yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of interesting stuff uh, over there on Hackaday.io. I mean, obviously, the boot camps are something we specifically... Uh, you know, foster and, and do ourselves, but you know, that's mostly community driven. And so if you just go, you know, that's something I just love to do once a week or so is go browse at all the things that are out on Hackaday.io. And, you know, there's the guy building the electron microscope and there's, you know, this amazing amount of projects out there um, that are really cool. And I saw one the other day. I don't think the post has actually come out yet, but it'll probably come out right about the time this gets published as well. Um, some of my favorite posts on Hackaday are for people trying to challenge how all this stuff gets taught to people. I love that, right? Because I don't think we always do the best job of that. And we, you know, in some ways, I think we've gone backwards. I mean, there's a calculus book from 1908 that I still think is the best calculus book, right? Better than the ones I had when I was in school because I'm not that old. I'm old, but I'm not that old. Um, but there's a, and I forget their names, but uh, the, they were actually talked at the super conference, which is the Hackaday conference uh, back in December, where one of them's got an MIT degree and the other one's self-taught. And they've come to the realization that teaching calculus is much better if you have 3D printed models of all these things that, you know, and then you can start talking about things like the volumes and the, and so they did this great talk and there was a post on Hackaday. I think it may have actually published. It's published in the last week or if not, it's about to, um, and, and I love that kind of stuff because I think that's one of the great things with the Internet. Um, you know, TV, who was the FCC chairman that said it was a vast wasteland, right? But there's all these educational things you could be doing with TV. And I think it's the same way with the Internet. There's cat pictures, yeah, you know, and there's other kinds of pictures. But there's so much educational opportunity there, and we just got to get out of these old modalities. Um, so I get a lot of these posts where they're doing all the really great computer graphics showing you about how like a fast Fourier transform works or how IQ signals on an SDR or, you know, it really give you that intuition. And maybe it's not as rigorous as saying, yeah, here's a whiteboard full of equations, which I don't know about you. That's what I got, right? That's what I got too. That's all I got. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, we had one professor that he would we'd come in and he'd have the board half covered with stuff and he would just keep writing. And you'd keep taking notes, and finally somebody would say, excuse me, Dr. Rogers, and he'd just turn around and go, shh. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> and that was the entire class was him writing on the board and you dutifully taking notes, you know. So I, I really think that's a, uh, you know, I love those kind of articles, and that's one that's stuck in my mind lately. And I think that's kind of, you know, as I mentioned at the top of the podcast, I mean, that's kind of the intersection of my, my interests, right? I, I like to think FPGAs are cool. I enjoy them. But I like to think we could be teaching more people more about them and documenting this stuff, you know, and that's kind of the boot camp ideas. How do we document? Uh, and that's a little more of an educational documentation. But, you know, you guys deal with a lot of external folks, right? So, you know, the state of documentation is generally not what you would wish it to be. Um, I get a lot of clients, especially where they'll be like, oh, well, Bob did this on an FPGA for us. And 
eight years ago. And of course, Bob's gone now, right? He retired or he quit or we fired him for surfing YouTube or whatever, you know. And, uh, and then you go, well, that's interesting because there's no documentation of this whatsoever. And I, I think that's a real interesting problem. And I don't think it's one we're attacking very well. So, you know, that's the other side to simulation, too. I think at least sometimes the simulations give you a way to delve into what is this thing really doing, right? Um, but it's still not ideal, right? You would wish for more uh, comprehensive documentation. So, I mean, how about you guys? You see a lot of this, too, right? You see great documentation, and then you probably see some pretty poor documentation, too. Yeah, on the, um, on the let's say on the Macrofab side, because side, we have a API documentation for our, 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 our um, web interface. And for the longest time, it was basically one of those just like self-generated or auto-generated documentation for uh, for the API endpoints. And so if you wanted to do something, you basically had to experiment with it and figure out what how, how it worked. Um, and it wasn't until like a couple months ago, like we finally sat down and wrote out like examples and and fleshed out the documentation so like you don't have to actually like you just have to read the documentation and now you understand how it works from a uh you know code design level um so i i've run into that problem williams where you just don't have proper documentation for even your own things (laughs) yeah right a year later you're like what in the world was i thinking yeah how does that work and you don't know until you actually try to do it and I, I'll say the biggest one I've run into, like the largest project I've run into that's got poor documentation is the uh, the KeyCAD Python documentation. It has gotten a lot better over the last like two months now. Um, like there's, I can't remember the guy's name, but he has a website where like he actually is going through the documentation and writing his own documentation for that Python interface. And because right now the official stuff is you have to go look in the code and see what it's what it's doing to figure out what you need like what attributes you need you can pull out of out of the uh, interface yeah i think i'm gonna go with that's that's the absence of documentation if you rec- if you require your end user to read the code itself that means there's no documentation <laughs> i always say that's what you'd ever want to hear on an airplane right is you don't want to hear the captain come on and say excuse me ladies and gentlemen this is the captain speaking uh, are there any software engineers on board <laughs> probably not your best flight so um so it's kind of interesting and i mean one of the things that i've always been kind of flirting with and i'm I'm afraid i'm not very good at it myself but i always think it's interesting you know donald newth had the literate programming you know so the tech stuff is all it's basically a book and inside the book there's code but the code's subordinate to the description um one of the things that's really stood out to me is the best example I've ever seen on that is that Jones on fourth. Have you ever seen that where the guy's name is Jones and he, he writes a fourth compiler, you know, interpreter kind of fourth's kind of weird, right? It's kind of both, but he does the fourth system and he starts with X86 assembly language and then moves into fourth, but it's the same way. It's almost all comments and you read the comments and then it's like, Oh, and here's a little code that goes with that. And it's it's more of a, and, and so they call that literate programming. Um, but I, I've recently been thinking about that again in context of FPGAs, not because of FPGAs, but because of the rising popularity of these Python uh, 
what do they call them? Workbooks, right? No, is it workbooks? What do they call them? The, the Jupyter notebooks, the Python notebooks. You guys been following that any? No, that's the first I've heard of that. So it, it used to be called IPython, and I guess now they've, they've made the Python kernel IPython, and so you can actually get it with other things other than Python, but essentially it's like literate programming. There's this document. It's a markdown document. It can have graphics in it. It can have, you know, graphs and hyperlinks and all that, but it also can have live Python code in it or other code. Uh, they were saying the other day they have a hundred different languages for it. I don't know if that's true or not. And, you know, I think that's an extension of this literate programming idea is that the code's not the main point. The document's the main point and the code supports the document. So it often makes me think that's probably what we ought to be doing with the FPGA documentation. Um, the two things I've historically always seen on documents that kind of cheese me off it's really easy to sit and say, oh, you know, Parker, you wrote about this API and it doesn't say what happens when you return a, a five or something. You know, it, it, find something that you wrote and it's, it's demonstrably wrong. What's really hard is to say, hey, I looked at your document and you know what's missing is this complete piece over here, right? People aren't trained to look for that hole. They look at what you put in front of them and they comment on it and they, they throw rocks at that. But the holes are really tough to find. And you can't see them because it's your thing, right? So you don't have holes at all. But that's the one thing I think when I look at stuff, I always try to think, okay, I, I'm happy or unhappy with what's here, but what do I think about the stuff that's not here? Um, I think that's one real big issue. I think the other thing is, is just there's so often when I go into a strange situation, which of course I do quite frequently, and start looking at you know whatever little documentation exists, uh, is that everyone assumes you know all the details about what's happening to begin with. So, you know, it'd be like if you say, okay, I'm going to document my car. And so you start going into, well, here's the transmission. Okay, well, wait, what does a car do? You know, I, I need to have four passengers and they move along a road at up to 60 miles an hour. Okay, that's the bigger picture. And as an industry, we're really bad at documenting that, right? Because we all think we know exactly what we're doing. Well, we do, but then the guy coming behind you, he may not understand that. That I mean, car is probably a bad example because we all know that, but generally that's not what I'm getting called in to look at. Uh, and it's stuff where you don't really understand the big picture. Frequently, no one left standing knows the big picture. And so all the detailed documentation in the world doesn't really give you a lot if you can't get that orientation to the universe. Um, so anyway, I don't know, but yeah, check out the... Uh, the Jupiter notebooks, it's kind of interesting. Um, we've got a Hackaday post coming out on those too, unsurprisingly, right? So, <laughs> so I'll put those in the notes and um, I'm going to read up about those after the podcast because they looked really interesting. That whole style of documentation, um, I, I, that's, it actually makes a lot of sense, is write a more of like a project description style thing and then make sure your project actually supports that. So go yeah. so start with the documentation and build towards that, which is actually how like classical engineering is done. Um, but well, when you're doing yes and no. Well, yeah, I mean yeah. the problem with the classical engineering is you usually are working with requirements that are so stilted that it's really difficult to you know, parsing them is its own job, right? And so where I have worked on big projects like that where we have requirements, I've always tried to have some architecture document that you could just go read on the bus. 
and go, oh, okay, I kind of, you know, I know, oh, I see four people have to get in the car and go 60 miles an hour with their luggage. Okay, that makes sense. There's a great story about, uh, who was the shuttle guy, uh, Max Faget, is that how you pronounce it? Where he had the 20 people in the room at the beginning of the space shuttle project, and he had the glider, and he threw it out into the audience, and he said, that's what we're making, you know, and I thought that's the that's the kind of thing you got to strive for is all the requirements in the world won't show you that glider going out into the audience, and and you've got to have both of those things, I think. So, so you're gathering links. I, I tell you, the one that you really ought to stick in the links. Did you see the post we did about a week ago about what really happens if your spacesuit decompresses in space? Uh, no. I, okay, so I have that on my list to read. In our, There's our so much chat. from this podcast that I'm going to have to go and do homework on. It's it's unbelievable. You've given me like 40 hours of work now. <laughs> so what happens if your spacesuit decompresses in outer space? Well, well, I think you should read the article, but the reason I wanted to point it out to you is I got to use the word meat balloon in that article, so I was really quite <laughs> pleased with that. Is, is, is that just a teaser? <laughs> that's just a teaser, right? If you want to read about meat balloons, you know, that's a, yeah. Yeah, so... <laughs> Hey, I actually did hear a story, and I don't know if this might be in that article, but uh, apparently one astronaut did actually get a hole punctured in his in his suit, and it was near his hand, and uh, the vacuum actually sucked a, a you know a, a portion of his skin of his hand into the hole and plugged it, and so for an extended period of time he had just a portion of his hand exposed to open space, and he it was fine. I mean. I'm sure it was a bit cold and maybe a bit red, but it uh, he he survived. Yeah, I'm gonna bet that you that little me. area probably wasn't fine <laughs> on his hand. <laughs> probably not. <laughs> well, no. The if you go read through that article, though, like I say, I won't spoil the ending of the article. But there was a guy in I believe it was here in Houston. He was a technician working on the suit or an engineer. I don't remember which, but uh, they had a uh, you know he was in a vacuum chamber and the tubing came loose. And he was exposed to, you know, very explosive decompression, and he survived it. I mean, I'll I'll give you that spoiler alert. He, uh, you know, it wasn't it wasn't totally annoyance free, and of course they also got him <laughs> repressurized very quickly. So I don't know that he would have survived very long, but you know, it's not this uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger exploding on the movie set like you. Uh, oh, and like you see, Total Recall and Total Recall was yeah. eyes pop out of his head. Yeah. Now it turns out that can happen too, and that's in the article, but it doesn't happen the way from those kind of conditions. So <laughs> it's kind of an interesting read. And I had to just plug meat balloon. I mean, that's just how often do I get to use that in an article? Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. That's a badge of honor right there. My, I, I'll say my that part in in Total Recall though, where Arnold's eyeballs are popping out because they're on the surface of of Mars in the vacuum. The, you can hear them screaming just fine though, which doesn't make any sense. <laughs> <laughs> There's a very small atmosphere on Mars, right? Just, just a I think very so, small. Yeah. So yeah, but they didn't like. It just sounds like they're in a normal room yelling. <laughs> <laughs> well, I spared you doing an Arnold Schwarzenegger impression, so you should thank me for that. So uh, don't you don't want me to do one either? I think Steven can do one though. Oh well, there you go. You know what? Maybe we'll we'll record a separate video of that. <laughs> <laughs> that should be the ending of each one of your podcasts, yeah, right? The, we'll be back. Yeah, yeah podcast go. after hours. So, um, is there anything else we want to talk about with FPGAs? I, I actually, I want to do a little more on the simulation stuff. Like, sure. So, on the EDA playground, 
is that like basically you you dump in your Verilog code and and simulate it? So it's really nice, and especially if you sign up, which I know some people have an aversion to signing up for things, but it doesn't cost anything. You get access to a lot of commercial simulators that would be really expensive for you to get yourself. Now, you can also use Icarus. I don't think you have to sign up for that one. Um, and there's a couple of versions of Icarus and everything. But it's basically a little IDE. You've got a left-hand side and a right-hand side. And your test bench, which is the code you don't intend to be synthesized, right? That's on the left. Your synthesized code's on the right. And there's a little UI for adding tabs. So if you've got multiple files, you can do that. And it doesn't handle those as well as you'd like, but it, I, I can tell you more about that in a second. And you pick your tool. You can pick different libraries, like if you want some of these verification libraries. Uh, and you, you basically tell it to run. And it will come in, and, and assuming it all runs correctly, you know, there's a console down at the bottom. It'll pop up a new window or a new tab, and it'll show you the waveforms on there. And you can pick which waveforms you want to look at and everything. So it's not as nice as, say, Model Sim or or even GTK Wave, but it's on your browser. It doesn't cost anything, and you don't have to install it. And if you're at work or something where you can't install stuff, you can still sit there and crash a little Verilog code out and take a look at the outputs. Um, so I was very impressed with it. I use it quite a bit, and like I say, we, we kind of centered the, the boot camps around them, uh, even though you can just say, no, I don't want to do that. I want to do it all on Icarus or whatever. We support that, and we kind of talk about how to do it both. The only downside to it, well, there's a couple of downsides. One is, is like right after the boot camps came out, they started crashing a lot, and I was afraid we might be responsible for that. So, um, you know, it, it, the availability is not 100%, right? If you look on his Twitter, you'll see they go down occasionally. Um, but the other thing is, the way that's set up, it really wants you to have your test bench named something over here and your main code named something over here and if you have multiple tabs you kind of have to include those other tabs so they're there but it doesn't pick them up as part of the library automatically so that means every time i do have something i'm really trying to do that's not just a toy i wind up having to go make little subtle changes to get it to work with that build system so it's not exactly the same as what i started with which is kind of you know not ideal uh, but it's not just Verilog, right? They do VHDL, they do System C, they do C++, they do, I want to say, Python. And, you know, if you go look on the tools, there's multiple tool sets you can pick. And then inside of each of those, there's different versions of the different tools. And like I say, some of them are commercial tools that would actually cost you a good bit to field yourself. Now, granted, you're not going to want to run your commercial top-secret designs out on the Internet to through some guy's web server to, to do the build, but just for stuff for experimenting or trying to make sure something works for a customer that uses a particular tool that you don't have or something, it's pretty cool. That's uh, that Simulation is one of those things I really want to start getting into for FPGA development, mainly from the standpoint of when you make one little change, like you're trying to debug one little tiny thing, and when you click compile, it's not... it's. It doesn't. It just takes forever to do that. That because most of the time it's the, it's that layout step where the your your EDA tool like what you're using for the FPGA like was it Xilinx um, has one and I can't remember what the Cordis is the one for Cordis is Altera Intel Altera, yeah, and, yeah so that's the one I use a lot um, so when you start doing that and you you're changing one variable like the incrementation for a variable for, for like 
you know, trying to sync a clock up. It, it takes a long time and just debugging that one thing could take you hours because how long it takes between each of the layout steps. But if you had a robust, you know, input into your simulation, then you can, you can probably do it in 15 minutes. <laughs> yeah, it's always way easier to catch stuff at simulation, especially because you have a God eye view, right? You can look at everything. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it it's not like the old days where you could just go send a tech into a rack with a couple of probes and find anything on this on the system so if you do want to try to debug live you know on the hardware you wind up building in a logic analyzer which most of the vendors have um, i did one by the way i found an open source one open veriflaw and i i didn't care for some of the way it worked and i basically kind of rewrote it but i forked it so if you look on github you can find a fork of open veriflaw uh, and it's a logic analyzer that'll drop into almost anything that's doing verilog but, you know, now I got to go, go wire that into the circuit and I got to bring it out and I got to do, you know, it's not convenient. Correct. Uh, whereas with the simulator, I can look at anything. And like you say, it's instant. I can make changes and immediately see what's happening. Um, one of the things that's interesting to me about the simulation, though, I run into, you know, this goes back to like the documentation. I see a lot of times where people have simulated their whole system, you know, and so here's my 85 Verilog files and I got a simulation test harness for all of it. Well, that's great until it doesn't work, right? And then it's like, okay, now what? It's this huge uh, project to go figure out, okay, that must be in this module or that module. So I'm much more of a fan of having small unit tests. And then, yeah, you probably do still need the big umbrella test, but that should almost be a formality at that point. You shouldn't be finding little quirky things inside of some module based on that. That should have been found way down at the early, very small step test bench. Um, you know, I think the other thing that you don't see a lot of people flash on immediately is there's really not one FPGA simulation step, right? There's really three. You know, there's the one where you sit and just look at the logic of the, the statement. So this is set to one when that's a zero, so it does that, and the timing is not necessarily going to be right uh, down to some pick-a-second level or whatever. But you can find almost all of your major logical bugs that way you know where i forgot like you say i should have added two and i added one or you know what was the old joke there's two main programming errors uh divide by zero um failure to initialize variables and off by one right yes <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's that's the two major errors um so you know you can catch all that kind of stuff pretty quickly and then you also have after you synthesize where you really start looking at the well that got synthesized into these AND gates and OR gates and inverters and really it gets synthesized into cells for the FPGA. You can simulate at that level and then after the layout, which is the long step you were talking about, you can back annotate timing into that and then you can really start looking at, well, that signal didn't get here until 18.3 picoseconds, you know, and this one got here at 19 picoseconds. That's a lot harder to make sense of, but you can actually do that with most of the vendor's tools, uh, and, and it's pretty awesome. The uh, amount of fidelity that they have on that is really just crazy awesome. Here's a, here's a question that I'm, I'm kind of interested in. Is there a way to bridge the gap between my digital simulation of my FPGA and my analog spice simulation? Say, let's take, for example, I've got a new power supply that I, for some reason, want to have it controlled by an FPGA. 
can I meld those two worlds together and actually do a spice simulation where I have resistors, caps, transformers, all this other stuff, and have my simulation of my FPGA actually control it? Yeah, that's mixed signal simulation. And so most, I'm trying to think, I can't think of a cheap way to do that, but all the bigger tools will, will do that, right? And the problem is they're not cheap. Um, I'm trying to think. Now, some of the simulation you see, like LT Spice and stuff, they can do certain amount of digital logic, but I don't think they do Verilog. So that would be kind of interesting. I wonder if somebody had ever thought about doing, you know, the, there's your VPI project, right? Is do the Verilog interface to go get over to LT Spice and do mixed mode simulation. Um, there's some other simulation products out there in open source that may or may not do that. I'd have to go look, but certainly it is possible and it's pretty well understood how to do that. It's just a matter of, can you do that with a free tool or not? I don't know. Um, you know, the one I think is really cool for just quickie simulations going back to the browser is that Falstead simulator in the browser. And you know, it's got digital logic too. Now again, not Verilog, but you know, you can actually have some digital circuitry driving into some analog circuitry and then drag it back out into the digital domain. Uh, and it's just all gate level stuff. I don't know if you guys ever played with that or not, but that's really cool. And in fact, we use that on the bootcamp zero for that same reason where we're just building and gates and flip flops and things like that. Uh, but it does very nice analog simulation. And what I really like about it working with students on the analog side, which we don't do on the bootcamp, but on the analog side, it actually shows you little dots moving along the lines and the velocity is proportional to the current. So you really get to see the visualization of, you know, oh, that lower resistor has faster current running through it than that bigger resistor or whatever. And it's just really illustrative. So I don't even get that on a normal spice software, you know, so it's really awesome. So that totally dodged your question other than to say, go spend a lot of money with mentor or somebody like that. And yes, you can do that. So. <laughs> Yeah, so I, I have a free copy of um, P-Spice from Cadence, and I know that they have a lot of uh, uh, higher level capability, and they likely have that capability. I just know on the free version, you're limited to a certain number of pins, and it's it's low enough that you know, you're able to do a few op amps and things like that, but you're not really going to simulate your entire system. Uh, and so I, I know in some ways it is possible. It's just on the more hobbyist and home gamer uh, level, I'm not aware myself of any kind of simulation that allows you to do both worlds mixed together. Well, you know, I wonder there's that, uh, is it Qucs? Q-U-C-S? And some reason something's telling me that maybe does something with that, but I don't, I don't remember that for sure. Um, but, I, you know, it certainly would be possible. And it's interesting, that would be a really cool open source project if there's not already something out there that will do that. Uh, let's see, here you go. So far, no attempt has been made to interface Qq's Verilog A models within it. So that kind of implies that possibly Qq's will do that. It's Q-U-C-S. I say Qq's. I don't know if anybody else says that or not. Um, but it may have some mixed mode capability. That was just from a quick Google and a vague recollection, though, so... I've I've never tried doing mixed mode, Stephen. So, I the most I've ever done with mixed mode is is plopping down gates in a spice simulator, uh, and it, and at that point it's just gates. You know, it's nothing particularly special there. Uh, there's no code behind it, or no code that I wrote behind it. I got it. You take your Verilog code, 
synthesize it into gates, plop that in. There you go. Yeah, that would totally work. It'd be yeah. like a thousand some odd gates. I'll, I'll, I'll get yeah, back to you in a year and a half when I have it all connected up. You have some Verilog <laughs> to spice netlist converter that would do that. I mean, that's, it's not impossible. Technically, yeah, technically that's simple, possible, but. right? Yeah, yeah. Click, click simulate and tell me how long that takes to <laughs> for it to think about all that. <laughs> well, great. Ed, does anyone have anything else? No more uh, meat balloons. <laughs> No, that was my that was my one hurrah for the day. I think was the meat balloon. So, well, I can give you a nice piece of trivia. So I was just uh, saw on Amazon they had the old show with Bob Cummings called My Living Doll from 1964, where he works for NASA and he comes into possession of this female robot. It's kind of like I Dream a Genie, but instead of her being a genie, she's a robot. And her designation on there was AF 709. And apparently that's where they named Seven of Nine uh, 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 in homage to that character off of that show. From Star Julie Trek Newmar Voyager. played the robot. Yeah, ah. yeah. So there's your, there's your random Star Trek trivia for the day. So we'll, we'll see if you edit that out or not. So. <laughs> <laughs> nah, it'll stay in there. So if that's going to wrap up this podcast, uh, Al Williams, do you want to sign us out? Well, that was the Macrofab Engineering Podcast. I was your guest, Al Williams. And we're your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. Later, everyone. Take it easy. Thank you, yes, you, our listener, for downloading our show. If you have a cool idea, project, or topic, let Stephen and I know. Tweet us at Macrofab, at Longhorn Engineer, or at analog eng or email us at podcast at macfab.com also if you have a cool project and want to get featured on hackaday let al williams know you can find it a uh, link in our description to uh send him an email also check out our slack channel that's where we all hang out and chat about engineering things and projects and things about the podcast if you're not subscribed to the podcast yet, click that subscribe button. That way you get the latest MEP episode right when it releases. And please review us wherever you listen, as it helps this show stay visible and helps new listeners find us.